Well, good morning, Summit Church. You guys in a good mood? All right. I have to have some good news this morning for you. Um, the uh, vote last week to purchase this property and uh, the uh, property right behind us here with the other, uh, the other warehouse as well as the acreage around it uh, passed with 98% uh, approval rate. Uh, so I feel like that's good news. Uh, I feel like we should be glad about that. I guess I should say that's good news for at least 98% of you. Uh, the other 2%, maybe not. But uh, anyway, now the fun starts as I will be in the weeks to come. You'll be hearing about the steps we need to take between now and uh, when we turn this uh, other property over here into a usable space for us to continue to grow. So the fun starts today. Uh, the other thing I want to say before I get started uh, this morning is uh, to review what your campus pastor told you uh, or your worship pastor told you about this marriage conference that's coming up. Um, I want you to understand that this guy we're, we're having come in to do this, Paul David Tripp, he's not coming in because he's a buddy of mine and, and I need to do him a favor. Um, this guy, you have heard Paul David Tripp teach on marriage a lot. You may have never known that you were hearing him, but I plagiarize him, I mean quote him all the time. Uh, he is one of the most influential thinkers on how I understand this relationship uh, and it's going to be fantastic. He is a national, he's one of the best in the nation at talking about these things and I really feel like you ought to take advantage of it. Uh, again, if you're married, it's going to be great. Uh, if you've been married for 30 years or three months, um, if you are single, I cannot guarantee you that if you come to this that you will walk out with a date, but I can guarantee that you will be prepared if you ever do get a date uh, after coming to this, all right? All right. Um, also, I've got, they yelled at me for not mentioning this. So sorry for the litany of announcements. Um, but along with this belief thing uh, that we've got going on with uh, the, the, the property here, we um, feel it's time for us to go ahead and plant our next campus, which is going to be in North Raleigh. Uh, and so there is in your worship guide information on an interest meeting that's coming up. If you have any interest in that whatsoever, uh, we would love for you to be at this interest meeting. I think it's in about a week or so, and I uh, would love to, to see you there at that. Okay? All right. Now, let me actually start off this message with a little good news, bad news, uh, which you guys want first. Good news? Good news it is then. Okay. Uh, we grew, here's the good news, we grew by 26% last year. That is about 1,100 people who are at this church now, today, than were here at this time last year, uh, and that's good news. That puts us pretty sol solidly on the list of the fastest growing churches in America. God is moving in the triangle, and this church is not the cause of that movement. This church is the reflection of that movement, if anything, and we should all be really grateful to be a part of that. Um, but here's my question, and this is sort of the, the bad news. Uh, here's a question. Did you personally have any part of that growth? In other words, is there anybody that you can point to that is here today because of you? I realize this is a little negative, but you see the fact that we grew by 26% last year means that only 26% of us saw at least one person come into the church last year because of us. So what's that say about the other 74% of us? I mean, yeah, the church that you are a part of is growing. And praise God for that. But is it growing because of you? Or is it simply growing around you? Again, more bad news. And sorry to be negative, but this is from last week. Um, only about half of you, of the 4,000 or so that come here on a weekend, only about half of you are active in some kind of small group, whether that's one of our small groups or some other ministry small group, only half of you are connected in a meaningful way to other believers. And only about a third of you are involved in some kind of intentional ministry. 
Y'all, I love having 4,000 people here on a weekend. But Jesus did not die to create an audience. He died to create disciples and worshipers. And there's just no way you can call yourself a disciple if you're not involved in community and you're not involved in ministry. I'm sorry. I know that's negative, and I, I hate to start off the message that way, but you can't call yourself a disciple if you're not in community and you're not involved intentionally in ministry. The message in this passage we're going to study today is a little confrontational, and I'm feeling a little confrontational myself this morning. You're, you were warned, okay? Uh, Paul's message to the new Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, is grow up. That's literally what he says. Verse 15, I want you to grow up in every way. Verse 14, I want you to no longer be children in the faith. This really communicates to me. It speaks to me deeply because I'm a dad of four kids. And y'all, while I love my kids as kids, I really want them to grow up. I mean, some of you that are older tell me to cherish this time because I think you've forgotten what it's like to get up at 3 a.m. and have to change the sheets on the bed. Um, there's nothing to cherish there. I'm just going to say that. I mean, yeah, I know I should cherish this time. I realize that. I realize I grow up too fast. But that said, there's nothing worse than a kid not growing up when he should. Nobody wants to be around a 10-year-old who still acts like he's four. I decided to have lots of kids so they could take care of me in my old age, not so I could take care of them forever. Kids in their younger years will run you ragged. Can I get an amen from any of our parents out there? It never ends. Never. It never ends. Sometimes in the morning, I'm like, thank God I'm going to work. I can get some rest at work. Now, as they get older, they become a little more useful, uh, your kids. Again, I had... I had four because I felt like the chances of, in four of one of them marrying rich is really, really good. Um, so that's why I had a lot of them. I, in fact, I have a new theory I'm working on. Uh, at age seven, here's my theory, and you, uh, you older parents can tell me this is true. At age seven, I feel like kids become a zero sum. In other words, what they take out from you, they are putting back into the other kids. And so I feel like, you know, now that Karis is almost seven, you know, I, I told her this the other night. I was like, you're almost seven. That means you're almost worth it now. Right? You know, you're almost in the black here for, for, for us. Um, I say all this, obviously, joking. If you're new here and a guest, this is not, I'm not really this bad. Um, but the point I'm making is this. There's nothing worse than an adult who still lives like a child. No girl wants to marry a 35-year-old guy who has no job and still lives in his mama's basement and plays Worlds of Warcraft until 3 a.m. each morning. All right? I hit a little close to home over here. <laughs> Some of you guys need to grow up and start taking some responsibility. In the same way, some of you desperately need to grow up spiritually. You come here and you do a lot of taking. You need to start giving. You need to become useful. So let's look at chapter 4. Again, I, I think you should notice it's very important how this chapter opens. Paul says, verse 1, I therefore. You see, therefore connects what he's about to say with all the stuff that he's just said. Again, he's not randomly bringing up the church. Paul has just given in Ephesians 1 and 2 one of the clearest explanations of what it means to know God anywhere. And what he's saying is if you get that, if you really understand it, you're going to be involved actively in the church. Now, I said this last week. I asked this question. Can you grow in Christ and be a good Christian apart from active involvement in the church? 
81% of Americans say yes. The Bible clearly, emphatically, and without exception says no. You cannot be growing in Christ and be a, a what God wants you to be without being a part of the church. Believing, real believing, always leads to belonging. I therefore, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling, worthy of the calling. In other words, I want you to walk in a way that is a proper response to what God has done in you. I want you to live in a way that is a proper response to the gospel. You see, all I'm going to talk about today is a response to this great and glorious gospel. And if you don't do the things that I'm telling you today that Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, it's because you don't get the gospel. Verse 2, look, he expounds a little bit on what that looks like. He says, you should walk with all humility. If you get the gospel at all, that your righteousness to God was like a filthy rag, that you had to be rescued from death, that you weren't even seeking God, and God stepped into your life and intervened to begin to seek you. If you get all that, you won't look down on other people with feelings of superiority or self-righteousness. How could you? There's nothing to brag about. Humility, the response to the gospel, and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. If you're aware of how God treated you, what gentleness and patience that God has used with you, you'll treat others that way. See, a lot of times I think about this when I, when I want to get harsh or impatient with people just because they're dull or they're lazy. And I think, you know, I wonder how God looks at me because I, I, I'm pretty sure that they are no more dull and lazy to me than I was to God. When you are harsh or impatient with others, that is a clear demonstration that you're not in touch with how patient and gentle God had to be with you. It has to be with you. And yes, I'm talking to married couples. When you are harsh and impatient with each other, what you are demonstrating is you are not aware of the gospel. Verse 3, you should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says if you get the gospel, you'll be eager to see peace you will not love controversy or division or strife or hatred can i tell you what one of the most disappointing things was for me about seminary it was how much everybody seemed to love controversy we love to talk about who messed up and who failed and not just by the way them i was a part of all these discussions and it just seemed that for a group of people who had gone to school to study the gospel, there was little evidence that many of us had actually experienced it. We seemed to love calling people fools and idiots and heretics. If you've experienced the gospel, you crave unity. You hate conflict. And I don't mean, by the way, you know, unity at the expense of truth, because Paul's going to say later to speak the truth in love. But see, you desire unity in the body of Christ. You see that word maintain in verse 3? This is really important. The unity that Paul is speaking of is not something that we find or create. It's something we maintain. We don't create the unity. The gospel created the unity. And what that means is that when we lose the unity, it's because we've lost the gospel. Notice verse 4. He likens our unity as Christians to the unity of a physical body. Think about your hand. None of you had to put your hand together this morning. Right? I mean, your mom growing up didn't have to say, now make sure you always, every morning, put your hand together correctly. Right? You don't have to create the unity of your hand. It just grows that way. Now, you have to maintain the unity of your hand. Don't go getting one of your fingers sawn off. I mean, that's not good. 
uh, Charlie Walnick, who goes over to our West Club campus, when he um, used to work here, he came in one Monday after a weekend. He'd somehow had a saw accident, cut one of the tips of his fingers. That's not good, okay? Um, maintain the unity of your hand, but you don't create it. None of you, you, no parts of your body were sewn together, unless you're Frankenstein or something. Right? It just grows naturally that way. It's the same way with the body of Christ. The unity and love for Christians and between Christians is a natural, organic response created by the gospel. And if you get the gospel, you'll be unified. And it's only when you forget the gospel that we start to tear apart or neglect the body. Guys, if you relish a fight, you do not know the gospel. If you love to gossip, you do not know the gospel. If you naturally don't want to, if you don't naturally want to connect with others and be involved in their lives and minister to them, you don't know the gospel. And don't blame it, by the way. You're, don't blame your disconnectedness on your personality. Well, I just like my personal time. I'm kind of an alone sort of person. The reason you like your personal time is because the only person you really love is yourself. And that's why you don't want to be involved in the lives of others. And that just screams that you've never really experienced the love of God. Because the gospel is God who is completely self-sufficient and is the only being who has never truly needed anybody else, him getting involved in the lives of others. So you keep reading, verse 4. Just like you were called to the one hope that belongs. You see that word? Belongs to your call. It's all inherent in your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, verse 7, Paul shifts and starts to talk about what the fact that God lives inside of you means for how you relate to the church and the world. Right? Let me just read the next few verses in entirety. And then make some comments on them all together. Verse 7. Grace, you see, Paul says, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it, the Old Testament says, and he quotes from Isaiah, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's us. And he gave gifts to men. This is an Old Testament prophecy that when Jesus rose from the dead, he would put his spirit into the people that he left behind, that's us, and he would give us supernatural spiritual gifts. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. We'll come back to that. Verse 11, and so he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all maintain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love to each other. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God's purpose in salvation, get this, was not just to save you and take you to heaven, 
God's purpose was to fill you with himself. Did you see verse 10? The whole point of Christ's work was that he might fill all things. God's purpose was to fill you with himself. That's what the whole point of all this is. To let you experience him moving inside of you. For you to love the world like he does and to be a conduit of his great power through you. So he fills you and gives you spiritual gifts whereby you experience him not just working for you and not just working in you, but working through you. Now, y'all, this is truly one of the most exciting things about Christianity. It really is. And sadly, many of you don't know anything about it. Or at least you've never experienced it personally. I mean, you feel like Jesus saved you, yes, but there is so much more that God wants for you. God wants to do some things through you that would blow your mind. He really does. He wants you to be amazed at how he fills you with himself and how you speak and you say the very ministry of God in you. You know, the Paul that prayer, the, the Paul that prayer prayed, the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, we studied this a few weeks ago, one of the components of that was he prayed that the church might be acquainted with or might understand the power that was at work in them and through them. Y'all, this is what he was talking about right here. He was talking about becoming familiar with these spiritual gifts that God had put inside of them that God was w going to minister his very power through them. One of the prayers that I have prayed for you in this message, I've prayed it all week long, is that you would not leave here feeling beat up by me because you're not more involved, but you would leave with this sense of eager anticipation because you had your mind blown at how much God wanted to do in and through you. I have prayed that God would literally change nations through this message. Not because the nations are sitting right here, but because some of you are going to realize how much God wants to use you, that it would blow your mind and you would go out from here and you would go to somewhere where God would use you to literally change somebody's eternity. That has been my prayer. This is what Paul is, is going after here. So I want to look at three questions, really briefly, I think, from this passage. Here they are. What are spiritual gifts? And how do I know what mine is? That's our first question. And secondly, we're going to ask, why is it so crucial that I know what mine is? And then we're going to review the question from last week. Really, why does this mean that I should be involved in the church? And then after that, I want to give you a quick word about what all this means for our church's philosophy. And then I want to make a personal challenge to you. Okay, there we go. Here we go. Number one, what are spiritual gifts and how do I know what mine is? Let me give you a definition that I think comes out of this passage. Here it is. Spiritual gifts are an experience or an ability that God has given to you that he intends to use to build up others. I'll show you where I get that. Verse seven, grace was given to each one of us. Verse 12, why? For the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, I come to know God better through your gift. It may be an experience that you've had with Christ that you share with me that helps me see him better. Or maybe it is an ability to help, that helps me know the truth about Christ or helps me see that truth in my own life. 
Some of you are gifted to speak for Christ. I know because I've experienced it. Some of you have given me words that God was saying to me. You have spoken over my life. You have spoken into my life. And suddenly I came to know something about God or my life better. Some of you are equipped to minister the compassion of Christ. And when you touch somebody, they feel more than just one human touching another one. They feel the very spirit of God, Jesus himself, ministering his compassion through them to you. Some of you, it's in how you, your mind thinks when it relates to ministry. You are just gifted at seeing what ministries need to be done and how to get them done. God gives you a special awareness of need and goes to work in your mind showing you what he wants to do there. Some of you, it's how you pray. When you pray, God gives you a gift of knowing exactly what he wants to do in a situation and you pray those things that God wants to do into existence. And verse 16 says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Not that God builds it up in love. It builds itself up because it's God in them. This is how Christ ministers to his people through spiritual gifts. It's how we experience his power. 1 Corinthians 12, another place where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He calls spiritual gifts a manifestation of Christ. Now, a manifestation is when something that is invisible is suddenly made visible. For example, if I was really angry at you, that's invisible. That's an emotion that you can't see. You can't see that I'm angry. If I punch you in the nose, that is a manifestation of my anger. You now know that that which is invisible, my anger has become visible in my fist encountering your face. Right? You, you catch that? That's a manifestation. In the same way, how Christ, who is invisible becomes manifest in the world how he ministers and makes his power known is through the gifts that he's put into the church now here's a question a lot of people ask like well how are these gifts different than just talents i mean for example you know jd i suppose your gift is preaching or teaching at least i hope so because that's what you built your whole life on but you seem to me to be a naturally talented speaker. If you didn't do this, maybe you could sell vacuum cleaners or used cars or you know, something like that. So how is it different than a natural talent? That's a great question. Um, let me give you an answer that comes from a theologian named J.I. Packer. Honestly, I could not improve on this, so I'm just going to quote him. He says, quote, The ability to speak or act in a certain way is only a spiritual gift if and as God uses it to build up the body. Some natural abilities or talents that God has given us, he never uses in this way. While sometimes he chooses to build up his body through performances that in our eyes seem substandard. In other words, sometimes we're really good at something and God just chooses not to use that in his body. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he doesn't want you to get proud about it. And then other times he'll take a, a grade C plus performance and he'll pour his spirit out on that and he'll use that in his body. Packer goes on to say, it's only what, ex what makes something a spiritual gift is not the quality of the performance, but the blessing of God. What makes your talent a gift is if God uses it to reveal himself to others. Talents are what God gives you when you're born. Gifts are what he gives you when you are born again. Sometimes gifts are given to you on top of your natural talents, and sometimes they're given to you despite your natural talents. And all of you who know Christ, all of you have one. I, I know that. Verse 7 says it. To each of you was given a measure of grace. There's nobody in here who knows Christ that does not have one, two, three, maybe ten spiritual gifts. 
You're like, well, how do you know what your spiritual gift is? How many of you have taken one of those multiple choice tests to figure it out? Just be honest, raise your hand, raise your hand all over all of our campuses. That is a disturbing number to me. But let me tell you when I totally lost confidence in those tests. Um, a number of years ago, Veronica, my wife, took one, and her top gift came back as celibacy. <laughs> I kid you not. So at that point, I had to write off all those tests because that's personal for me, okay? <laughs> I'm not saying there's no value in those tests, by the way. But here's how you know. A lot of times you can just feel it. A lot of times you can sense the Spirit of God at work in you, Right? Sometimes and usually it's because other people tell you about it, how God used you in their lives. That's, by the way, one of the reasons we want to have a culture around this church where we affirm the work of God in each other's lives and we tell people, God used you this way in my life because that's how they come to know those gifts. When God is using you, other people tell you about those things. So number two, why is it crucial that I know what mine is? Our second question. Well, it's because you're uniquely gifted, see? And you have a particular gift, a particular part of Christ that only you can display. And there are certain things that only you can do in ministry. Let me give you an analogy. Your physical body is completely unique. The human DNA code, I don't know who figured this out, but the human DNA code can be arranged in one in ten to the two billionth power ways. That's one in ten with two billion zeros after it. Uh, just to put that in perspective, you know, um, the national debt, the trillion number, only has 12 zeros in it. This is a number with one and two billion zeros behind it. That's how many different varieties of human there are. Okay, so be assured you are unique. There's never been anybody in history that's like you. I used to think that maybe if you go back a thousand years, I'd meet somebody who was exactly like me. That's not going to happen. It's just the odds against that are too, too severe. You are unique. It is the same way spiritually. There's nobody like you. You have gifts. You have vision. You have experiences. You have energies that drive you that are completely unique. That God has given to you. And that means that there are certain ways that only you can reveal Christ and certain people only you can influence to come under the Lordship of Christ. And if you don't use your gifts, there will be people that God intended to reach through you who will otherwise never be reached. And so that's what I want you to embrace. Ephesians 2.10, we studied this a few weeks ago, says that God has preordained works for you to do. There are people that he wants you to reach and bring into the kingdom that nobody else can reach but you. I can't. There are, there, are, there are those of you in here that God intends to use your mouth to speak words of deliverance and freedom to captives who otherwise, without you, are going to stay in prison, bound. God's going to use you to minister his healing to certain people who otherwise are not going to experience it. There's some of you in here that God intends to take his power to a certain people group, a certain nation. That's the word that he has preordained for you, and God is going to use your mouth and your ministry to set people free. And if you don't use and embrace your part of the body, it's never going to get done. That's why you've got to find your gift. Right? You're part of the body. This is how Christ does his work. 
The other dimension of this is I know that you'll never really experience fulfillment until you find your gift. God saved you so that you can be filled and used by him. Do you know what that is like? Listen, a lot of you know that Jesus has saved you. But do you live daily with the knowledge of his fullness? The knowledge that he's using you? For most of you, the answer is no. Or at least it hasn't happened in a long time. You know Jesus as Savior, but you don't know him as the power surging through you. I can remember the first time I felt like God ever used me. It was somewhere about 15 years old when I was sitting on my front porch with a guy, a friend of mine that, that lived in the neighborhood, and as I was explaining to him who God was and what God was doing in my life, I remember when this guy said, I get it, I understand that now. I remember when he, when he bowed his head and put his trust in Christ. I remember that sensation that God, the eternal God of the universe, had just used me in somebody else's life. It was a life-defining moment for me, and I have never been the same. Some of you have never experienced that God surging through you and using you. It's one of the reasons we love mission trips around here. I, I love watching people who've never been on a mission trip. I love watching them go and come back, and they get that wild look in their eyes when they come back, and they're like, you know, they're all cross-eyed, and they're like, you're like, what's in you? And you're like, I just got used. I got used by God. And you suddenly get this sense that the eternal God of the universe wants to do so much more through you than you ever dreamed was possible. See, the point is many of you feel unfulfilled and bored spiritually because you've never experienced the power of Christ surging through you. Here's something I know. My sermons will never be entertaining enough to keep you coming back here week after week. I don't care how entertaining I make them. The ones of you that will come here and be committed are the ones who have an awareness that God has a plan for you and he is using you. So number three, why should I be involved in the church? Well, again, these verses tell us that it's because God reveals a part of himself through each of us. Last week, I compared it to a mosaic. You know, in a mosaic, if you take one individual tile, the tile is pretty enough by itself, but it's only when you put all the different tiles together that you get the full picture. Well, in the same way, Christ has revealed part of himself to you and in you and through you, and that's awesome. But it's only when all of us are together that we get a fuller picture of who God is. You see what he said there? He wants you to arrive at the knowledge of the Son of God, and that's revealed in the church. You see, some of you have experienced certain things, watch this, in your life that I haven't experienced. You've experienced God in certain ways because of how your life has gone that I haven't experienced. And if I want to know that dimension of God, I've got to know you. There's no other way. So you become involved in the church because you want to know Jesus more. Furthermore, we know the power of God from this passage. It tells us that the power of God flows through the church. Thus, if you want the power of God to be at work in your life, you've got to be involved in the church. Last week, I explained that a lot of people pray to God. Oh, God, help me. God, work in my life. But they're not involved in the church. And God's, you know, in heaven listening to this, and he's like, okay, you're wanting my power here, but you're not where I place my power, so why are you praying and asking me for power if you hadn't put yourself in the place where I give it? It's like you're, it's like you're, like you're standing there with your TV unplugged, complaining that it won't work. How come the TV doesn't have power? You're like, well, plug it in, moron. That's where the power is. A lot of people are like, well, I really want God to work in my marriage. 
So you're praying. And some of you, this is totally you. I'm, God, help me in my marriage. And what you want is for God, like I said last week, to zap you from heaven with the Holy Ghost taser gun. So suddenly you wake up and you're a perfect husband. You wake up playing the harp, singing love songs to Jesus and your wife. You know, you're in a good mood. Your breath smells great in the morning. You know, your wife is suddenly into you. She wants to be intimate with you. You're now selfless. God just fixed your marriage. And if that doesn't work, then maybe I go get involved in a small group. Maybe I get, you know, around some people who could speak into my life and he, they could minister to me and they could show me how to have a God relationship. But that's plan B. That's if the zap doesn't work. This tells you that's how, that the church is plan A. That's how God does his work. Think of the analogy of the body, right? I mean, think of this. My elbow, if it starts itching, sends a little message up to my brain. That's a prayer. And says, I itch, help, I can't itch myself. So what does my brain do? Does my brain send a little electronic message back to the elbow that just says, stop itching, I command you? No. It sends another little message to my digits on my right finger, and it says, go and itch the left elbow. And it scratches the itch. Now, this is really deep. What just scratched the itch on my elbow, was it my brain or was it my fingers? What a dumb question. If it's my brain through my fingers, right? My brain doesn't send a message down and take care of it itself. It sends the body to do that. You want God to work in your life. It is through the church, the place where he has placed his power, that he does that. It is at the point that I told you this last week, and I know this is harsh, but I totally mean it. If you are praying for God to work in your life and you're not connected to his body, quit praying. I realized that I spat a lot when I said that, but I really meant it, okay? <laughs> the Holy Ghost spits through me. It's quit praying, seriously. God's like, why would you pray and then not plug yourself in? Quit praying. Because you got to put yourself in the place where he flows his power so the question when somebody says how involved should i be in the church based on chapter four i would tell you a better way to phrase that question is how much do you want christ to be a part of your life that's how much you should be involved in the church how much do you want to know christ that's how involved you should be in the church all right those are our three questions now in light of all this let me tell you a little bit of our philosophy of ministry here at the summit this is kind of the method behind the madness now, you look at us, you think we're insane. I'm going to tell you what's behind that that makes us insane. I understand, you see, according to this passage, that God has filled you with his spirit and with his gifts for the purpose of ministry. So my role as a pastor is mostly to teach you to discover and how to access that power. My role as a pastor is not for you to come and be amazed at how strongly the power of God flows in me. I don't mean to be crude here, but when you're a baby, you have to be fed and nursed by your mother. Right? Veronica, my wife, gets our youngest kid, who's just a few months old, out of bed several times a day, feeds him from her breast. His role is he drinks, and then he recycles that into a neon rainbow collage of colors that he puts out in his own time. Then she burps him and changes him and puts him back to bed. And they do this six to eight times a day. And that's okay as a baby, but she doesn't want to do that forever. Listen, I don't want your relationship to me to be in any way 
similar to that. Because that is disturbing on so many levels. We agree on that? I want to empower you. I don't want to nurse you. I want to empower you. I want you to grow up. And Paul says in verse 11 that pastors and teachers, that's me. We are put into the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does the ministry? The saints. Who are the saints? Again, not the football team. You. You're the saints. What's the pastor's role? What's the pastor's role? Starts with E, rhymes with whipper. Equipper. That's my role is I equip you for ministry. That's why I tell people, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I actually totally mean it. When I became a pastor, I left the ministry. According to that verse. Because the ministry happens in the community. That's where the power of God wants to be. The people that I work with on a day-to-day basis, you guys work in the community, I work in the church. The people I work with on a day-to-day basis are mostly saved. Not all of them, a few of our staff i got questions about, but most of them are saved. You are in the community, and my role is to equip you to see the power of God come through you. That's why I point out all the time that of the 40 miracles in the book of Acts, 39 of them happen outside the church. 39 of them. That means the last thing that I want to do is gather a group of people to bask in the gifts of one great leader. What I want to see are a group of people empowered to be leaders themselves. Not a group of people coming to be awed at the power of God in me, but a group of people being released to take God's power into the community. The greatest access to power is not in me, in the church. It's in you, in the community. Look, this next part's a little radical, but it'll explain a lot to you about why we do things the way we do. I believe the best ideas for ministry are in you and not in me. Because God put his spirit in you, not just in me. That's why when people come to me and they're like, Pastor, we really need this ministry and that ministry and we ought to be doing this. I'm like, yeah, we sure do. And then there's always this kind of awkward moment where they're waiting on me to fix it. And I'm just staring right back at them. We're going to see who can out-awkward each other. And I'm like, well, since God gave you the desire and the vision, you should look to him to give you the plan for what to do. There's only a few things we at the church here try to do, and they're all related to equipping. That's all we try to do as a church. There are some churches you go to that it's like they try to do everything. They want a ministry for everything. It's all got to run through the church office. It always reminds me of a golden corral where you got a little bit of everything and none of it's any good. I mean, no offense, you guys are like Golden Corral or if you work there. They serve Asian food at Golden Corral. You should not serve Asian food at anything that has corral in the name of it. Fair? They try to do a bunch of stuff. They try to do everything, something for everybody. <laughs> you don't like to eat there. There is another restaurant that I do like to eat at. It's called Ruth's Chris. Right? Now, I don't get to eat there often, only when I'm given a gift card. <laughs> right? We communicate, like for my birthday, which is coming up in a few weeks. Um, the reason I love this is because they do a few things. Oh, but they do them well. Right? Salads. No, no. They do meat well. Right? As a church, we want to be more like a Roos Chris than we do a Golden Corral. So you come to me and you're like, well, we need a ministry doing this. I'm like, look, our role is to equip. I believe that vision that you just got, I believe that was from God. And I want to empower you and I want to release 
you. I want you to grow up in Christ. Here's an interesting thought. Never in the New Testament is the world commanded to come into the church. To hear me. The church, however, is frequently commanded to go into the world. That's why our primary evangelism in this church is not for me to share the gospel with you each week through a megaphone. Our evangelism strategy is for you to do it in the streets. You're like, but J.D., you do it every week. You share the gospel every week. Yes, I do that for two reasons. You want to know what they are? Number one, I want to do it to be a model to you. I want you to hear me doing it so that you can know how to do it when you talk with somebody else. So I do it every week to show you how to do it. The other reason that I do it is because we want to partner with you in reaching people. And I figure if you can bring a guest in here, then I can raise some questions. And then our members know that it is their role after church to take the guests that they brought out to lunch and to explain to them all the questions that I brought up. I'm partnering with you. I'm doing a part and you do a part. By the way, if you're a guest here, that means, and you can hear me say this, that the person that brought you today is obligated to take you out to lunch right after this and to explain to you everything that I'm saying and to pay for your lunch, okay? You have heard me say that in their presence and in your presence. See, the goal, the goal is you to grow up in Christ and not depend on me. I don't want this to be a safe house where you spend all your time in a holy huddle. A lot of Christians mess up this whole discipleship thing. For years, Christians have thought of discipleship as basically taking people out of the dirty old world and then dipping them in the, the Holy Ghost Clorox, and then putting them in the church like a greenhouse and trying to keep them away from that nasty old world so they don't get dirty. And that's disciple. We define holiness by what you avoid. That's not discipleship. To be a disciple means that you come to know Jesus and you live like he did, and he was not a man that was separated from the world. He was a man that was in the world. To become a disciple means that you take God's healing into the world. Holiness is not what you avoid. Holiness is becoming like Jesus. And Jesus was a man who poured out his life. You see that? A lot of times what churches end up doing is they disinfect Christians. They don't disciple them. And discipleship is mission. See, Our vision is seeing Jesus released in and through you in the community. Not contained in the pulpit. A lot of churches, I feel like, are like, I mentioned the word huddles a minute ago. It's almost like if you were watching the Super Bowl, and one of the teams comes out, comes out in the field, and they all get around, and you see the quarterback calling the play, and they're all like nodding their head, and they all clap their hands, and then they all run back over, and they sit on the sidelines, and they sit there, and they mess with the cheerleaders for a while, and then they run back out in the field, and they get around, and get the huddle, and the quarterback calls the play. Like, oh, it's awesome. And they go back, sit back. I was like, that is such a good picture of the church in a lot of places i mean imagine this football team around the quarterback going man what a great play nobody calls to plays like you man when you were calling that play the hair in the back of my neck was standing up and then the cheerleaders that little dance they were doing with the play that's like our worship team they man they really got me fired up about it what an awesome play i love this team let's go sit in the sidelines and after a while, you're like, for God's sake, run the play. Run the play. I'm not calling this play so you can come back next time and get in the huddle and listen to me call the play even better. Run the play. The play is not in the church. The play is in the community. I'll call the play. Don't tell me what a good play it is. Run it. Run the play. We communicating? All right. Thank you. All right, lastly, I got a challenge for you. 
You ready? It's real simple. Grow up. That's it. Grow up. Some of you have been sitting on the sidelines for so long. Stop complaining to me about how the church is not meeting all your needs. And start being a part of the ministry. People are like, well, this church isn't doing this for me. And I'm not being fed in this area. And I want to go get a bib for you and then put you down for a nap when you say that. I think about Raya, my daughter. She's my, um, my youngest daughter. She's like two. If she is not satisfied after dinner, oh, she screams, feed me. I want something else. Nana, give me a Nana. And when she does that, I get this image of certain church members. Feed me. My diaper needs to be changed. Like, seriously, grow up. It's one thing when Raya does that to us. That's another whole other thing if I did that to Veronica. After dinner, I was like, I'm still hungry, and I think I wet my pants. <laughs> and she'd be like, go change your own pants, and if you're hungry, fix yourself something to eat. If you see something wrong in this church, you try and fix it. If you see a ministry that we're not doing, you get it started. People come up to me and they get this list of things they don't like about the church. As if I think the church is perfect. Right? And they're going to inform me about some areas that are not good. And then as soon as I know about them, I'm just going to wave my Holy Ghost wand and everything is going to be fixed. And people come to me with this list of complaints. I promise you, you will never come to me with a list of complaints about this church, a list of what's wrong with the church that is longer than my list. Right? In fact, some of you were on my list of what's <laughs> wrong with <laughs> God didn't put me here to fix the church. He didn't put the Spirit of God only in me. He put it in all of us. See, grow up. Take the bib off. Get up from your nap. Take your diapers off. It's time to be potty trained and let the Spirit of God go to work in you. Some of you need to step out in a ministry. That's why in your worship guide today, we got a whole list of things that you could get connected to. So you need to be involved in a small group. So you need to go on your first mission trip this year. Listen, y'all, the great truth about salvation is that this great God that we serve has put all of himself and all of his redemptive power in you. So unleash God through you. Unleash God. Let me close today by giving you a little insight that makes all this make sense. And I want to talk to you that are Christians, you that are not Christians, both of you. Because I want to explain to you why some of you feel so unfulfilled. Christians or non-Christians. You see, the Bible teaches, get this, that we're created in the image of God. That's how God made us. The image of God, well, God, there are two fundamental things about him. One is he is a trinity, which means there are three members of the trinity. It's only one God. But what that means is that forever, in eternity past, God has always been in community. God has never been alone. There's always been fellowship in the Trinity. Secondly, it tells us that God is love. It's the only description that is used of God where it says a predicate nominative, God is something, God is love. And the way that God showed his love to us was by pouring himself out and giving himself for others and coming to invest in and be a part of our lives. Follow. You are created in the image of God. 
What that means is that you will never feel fulfilled until you, like God, are in community and until you are pouring yourself out for others. You, you catch that? You see, that goes totally against the American culture's prescription on how to be fulfilled in life. Two words define the American dream for fulfillment. One is the word alone, right? If you, be alone. If you're going to get in a relationship, don't get committed because marriage is like a prison. It just ties you down. So don't get committed, don't get involved, to, you, you know, don't get connected because that becomes a prison. Do it alone. If you're going to get married, don't have a lot of kids because kids totally encumber and mess up your life. When you have kids, you can't go to movies anymore, just whenever you want. And life is about going to see good movies, so don't have a lot of kids because it's totally going to screw that up. Alone. The other word that describes the American dream is the word acquisition. Acquire. Money, wealth, power. Get it and leverage it for yourself. Do you realize that is exactly the opposite of the image of God? God is community. God is love. The reason some of you don't feel fulfilled is because you're operating outside of your design. You're alone and you're acquired and you're created to be in community and to be pouring yourself out. It's a design thing. It's just like any other design thing. If you decided that your car was not running smoothly and you thought in order to lubricate your car, you would pour bacon grease into the gas tank to lubricate. That that makes sense on one level. But it's not going to work because it's not designed to do that. You're created to be in community, and you're created to be pouring yourself out. Therefore, I am telling you, that's why some of you feel so unfulfilled. If you're a believer, it's time to get off the sidelines and get in the game and engage. Get involved in a small group. Get involved in a ministry. If you're not a believer, realize that what's all behind this is a God who created you for these purposes. And it all starts with a relationship with God. If you're not a believer, the person that brought you today is going to take you out to lunch after this, and they're going to explain all this to you and pay for your lunch. All right? I'm done. So bow your heads and pray, and uh, let me pray over you, and I'll turn it over to them. God, help us to be a church that grows up, that's not just here because one man or one group of men or one group of men and women are filled by the Spirit, but we become a place that empowers and releases the power of the Spirit through our people into the community. God, may the greatest miracles that are in the future of this church happen not in here but out there god i prayed that maybe somebody today would hear this and you would go use them to change somebody else's eternity or perhaps change an entire nation by being used by you to take your power into those places god grow us up in jesus name amen